Welcome to Altered State of Affairs, the podcast with Gerald Kazimov, produced by the team at CasSource and part of the CasSource Podcast Network. Altered State of Affairs, the novel also by Gerald Kazimov, is available at your favorite bookstore, including Amazon, Barnes & Noble Online, and most local and indie bookstores. beginning of chapter 31, you present a quote by Stephen King, who you've talked about in blogs that you've written, that he's your hero. Was Stephen King a hero of yours before you started writing this book? Did you read his books? Did you watch his movies beforehand? Like, when did that come to be? I didn't know that, but I remember seeing the books in your office growing up. I've always been fascinated by his plots and where he, you know, anything is possible there are no rules, and he seems to have broken the barriers of boundaries. And I love this fascination with the alternative stuff and the altered stuff. Maybe he, when he started doing this stuff, he didn't even know about the metaverse, because that really came to be in uh, recent times. But I'm just fascinated with, with how he develops his characters, his plots. So <laughs> maybe someday I'll be acknowledged as one of his students, but it's just something that brings out a lot of interest in me. When you grew up, did you watch horror movies? Well, I grew up in like a science fiction age, you know, where they had a War of the Worlds and Invasion of the Body Snatchers and all this other stuff that was going on. So, you know, I had a Flash Gordon ray gun when I was a kid. And somehow <laughs> that just, it came into the book. So you were just talking about having a ray gun and growing up with science fiction movies and books and all that, but not horror specifically. And the reason I asked that is when you get to chapter 31, 32, 33 in that area, and you mention it and you quote Stephen King, it's not a horror movie, but it's what, and he references it, your character references, this is what a horror movie would look like. You just set the scene and you mentioned Chucky and all these things are happening that this is the beginning of potentially a horror movie. Now, that's not what the book is, but it has that feeling of it. So it, I guess it goes to your point of the alternative. Right. So there are multiple layers of things. And we can talk about this stuff until the middle of the night. I mean, are we living in the primary world or is there a world below us made up of the molecules and electrons? And there's another world with those people or is there another world above us and we're their model? So I don't know. So when you think about all this stuff, there's no limit to what can be. You know, and is there a creator or how this come to be? And like, is somebody minding the store and controlling our lives or do things just happen? So the more you read, the more you want to know. And the more you study about like quantum physics and about the theories of uh, evolution and scientists say, well, you know, the chances of this happening are so remote, you know, anything's possible. So I'd like to think about this stuff. Yeah. When you go to this place where you're writing a book that seems to be going down this path of military and things maybe aren't all that they seem, but maybe not so far out there. And all of a sudden, you have your main character talking to an eyeless doll, and he's even questioning what is happening here. We think back to when, when you're a child, they just talk about things and they come up with these random ideas and they don't care what the world thinks about what they're about to say. You start putting this out there, you publish this, this book gets published, it's out there for the world to read. And knowing that you are coming up with these wild ideas, kind of like Stephen King came up with these wild, I mean, 
how does someone come up with that stuff and then be okay to actually put it out into the world and expose yourself to think that, what is this guy talking about right now? Well, as a kid, I was very honored to be with the Superman and superhero comic books that had just come out. And actually, the the authors of uh, Superman went to the high school, the same high school as my mother. So I had heard about these guys. And all of a sudden, Superman and all the other superheroes became a part of my life. And it was fascinating. So I don't know why my mother ever threw all this stuff out, but it got me thinking about these guys could do anything. They could fly. They came from other planets. And all of a sudden, they're here. They came from under the sea and the stars. And so that was a product of my upbringing because it was a product of the time. And now you look at all these movies that are out and anything is out there. So I don't know. You can imagine, you know, just imagine. And like Walt Disney would say, you know, if you can imagine it, it can happen. And so it's a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, I just think that a lot of people have a hard time going and taking it to that level of just putting something out there. Like I can just see as you're talking about it and the words that you use that you really haven't thought about it. You haven't worried too much about what someone else might think on the ideas. You might think a little bit about, I hope the people like the book or they like my writing, what have you. But as far as taking these exotic ideas and putting them out there for the world to see, that hasn't stopped you. What I think a lot of people, it has stopped them. And I think it's inspiring to have someone out there doing this, right? Well, I guess it's my personality. I'm not an exhibitionist, but I like to expose things. I'm a disruptor. So I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid to do this stuff. You know, people don't like it. They don't like it. You know, my wife's an artist and art is in the eye of the beholder, just like creating a piece of literature. Some people like it, some don't, some get entertained, some get turned off, but that's good. If I make people think and if I touch their soul, so to speak, or their innards or or something happens and I have an effect, then I've accomplished my goal. So, you know, some critics will bash me. So what? I don't care. I'm having a ball. Yeah. If a kid were to listen to this and someone who's maybe out of that period of their life to where they are starting to notice what other people think about them and they're into whatever they want to create, whatever toy they want to play with, whatever story they want to write or video they want to create, like what would be, I don't know if it's advice or thought or thing to think about for someone young, whether it's your grandkids or somebody else to inspire them to, you know what? Keep creating, go for it. Like, what would you say? Go for it. I've always thought of myself as someone who swims upstream, who is that bird that flies away from the flock, uh, flies away from the swarm. And there's a whole scientific regimen called the swarm theory. You know, how does a swarm of birds react or a swarm of fish? And then all of a sudden, one flies away or swims away. I like to think of myself as the one that goes in the direction I want to go, not where everybody else goes. So, yeah, I care what people think. I want them to like what I'm doing and want them to get turned on, so to speak. But that's part of the deal, man. If you want to do something, you could do it. You go down your highway. And not that you don't want to care. I do care, but I'm doing it my way. Yeah. You're giving the example of what you're doing and what you've done and that someone could unhear those words and follow suit almost in their own way, not doing exactly what you do. There are so many cliches out there and you you try to tell somebody, you know, do this and do that. And there's fear involved. There's risk reward. And you have to lay all the options. But basically, you can't grow. You cannot grow unless you take some risk. You know, you've got to take a measured risk. You don't want to fall off a cliff and destroy your life or become 
so stressed out about it. But like a turtle that sticks his or her head out of the shell and see, you know, the turtle's not going to move an inch unless they bring their head out and their eyes open and look and see what's out there. So there's a circle of friendliness. But if you want to like explore the world, you've got to like set your boundary and go a little bit. Increase your boundary by a little bit. And that's what I would tell kids who are looking to do something that's maybe a little bit different to be not part of the pack. You know, just like take a tiny risk. You want to be good. You don't want to cause any trouble. But when you grow, you have to be a little bit uncomfortable at times. So it's not for everybody. But Yeah. Well, it's tough, right? So the book goes out and the book at this point has been published for a little bit. And randomly, a one-star review shows up on Amazon and there's no comments to it. And we talked and we've been researching and thinking through that whole thing. And when you see that, it's the same concept of someone being the naysayer, the hater, the whatever. But you see that for someone who's got your thoughts, like what was your initial reaction? And then what was your action once you like sat with it for a bit? Well, all this review stuff is crazy. You know, you review everything. You review going to the dentist. You review this and that and all this stuff. So I don't mind a negative review. What bothered me was the person didn't have the guts to like leave their name or tell me why. Just give me a one-star review. So whatever. Yeah. You know, I don't mind criticism. Just tell me what you're criticizing. Yeah. Well, I noticed that too early on when you first started writing the book, how much editing was needed. And then once you got into the process of it, I think you actually enjoyed the process of editing and rewriting, not just like changing some words here or there. I'm like rewrites of the book. I saw you take that on with excitement, passion, and let's get after it. And then you also, there was an example we talked about at one point where you would get frustrated if you weren't getting feedback and criticism. And it was like... Right. I didn't want, you know, my editors giving me a carte blanche. Oh, yeah, that's great. Did a great job. and move on. <laughs> no. I mean, I wanted to learn I felt like I had gone back to school because this is not my regimen. This is not my area where I studied. I, mean, I was in the science world, physics, chemistry, anatomy, you know, healthcare. So this is all new to me, although it had been an interest my whole life, writing, poetry. But so I was blessed with these incredible, and I still have incredible editors and mentors. They were like teachers. So I wanted to pick their brains, I wanted them to tell me what they thought. And even if it was negative, but how am I going to learn? If everything's positive, I need to know, like, you know, maybe you should do it this way, or maybe this is not clear and you should rewrite that, or maybe you're not setting the scene right, because I don't know where you are. Tell me where you are. Or maybe the, your trail of the story is not clear, or make it more exciting. Like, you know, what else is going on? Leave some tension or describe some beauty. You need to do all this stuff. So these were incredible lessons that I learned. And I'm going to be learning for the rest of my life. So you never, you, you know, you never, it's like the rabbit and the hare. You're never there. And it's like an artist. You know, when do you close a painting? When do you ship it? As they say, well, when you ship it is when you are satisfied yourself that you did a great job. And that's it. You know, I talk about in my blogs and you look at the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror for women, you've got to be happy with that person. Yeah. Do you remember being in school and you write a paper at any point in school? It's not good enough. Go back, work on this, do this. And you, I've heard people explain it. I know I felt it where you're just like total deflation <laughs> where it's just, I can't believe I have to do this. And then you go back to your room, your office, wherever, and you're just, you're like pissed off about it. Well, you know, it would <laughs> piss me off. 
I had good teachers growing up like everybody and some teachers that weren't encouraging. Okay, so I don't mind being chastised with something. Explain it to me. Make it a learning experience. Teach me how to think. Teach me how to do research. And if something's not good, if I have to rewrite it, tell me why. Show me the way without holding my hand, but just say, you know, you could do this differently. That's what a good teacher does. Other teachers will slap you on the wrist and say, this stinks. Go do something else. But if you have that, right? So a lot of people won't be as lucky to have the great teachers, but that doesn't mean they don't have the ability to still go back and, you know, maybe the piece isn't ready yet and they have to go rewrite it. It would take some, maybe deep breathing is the answer to just get over yourself and get back to work. And, you know, maybe you don't have the right teacher for it, but that doesn't mean you can't create a better piece. Well, it's exasperating sometimes that you think you've done like the best you can do. And then somebody tells you, you got a ways to go or you're still a lot to learn. And so, yeah, so you take a deep breath and close your eyes and jump back in it. And at some point, you can rewrite something a thousand times. But in the end, when I was satisfied with what it was and my teachers winked at me and said, that's it, we're on to something good, that was a great feeling. There's nothing like it. I don't care if you're running for a touchdown or, or you hit a perfect drive in a golf or whether you just smile at a person when you walk down the street and that person smiles back at you. You don't even know who that person is. They smile back at you. They just make your day. And so that's what I feel about writing. When that person smiles back at me, no matter if it's my teacher or the person in the mirror, then I'm okay. Chapter 31. Dolls with no little girls around to mind them were sort of creepy under any conditions. Stephen King, Desperation. Standing tall in the back of the cemetery amid a sea of seemingly endless headstones are two dozen magnificent mausoleums staring down at the commoners. It's as in life, the wealthy few huddle unruffled in death, swaddled together in their exclusive neighborhood, flaunting their good fortune for all to see. Inhabiting one of these crypts is an eyeless doll guarding the whereabouts of the infamous facilitator. But there is no doll, or for that matter, anything else outside the tombs or out of place. Looking closer, six houses of death have windows to peer in and out. Very cautiously, I commence the search for my new best friend. The mausoleums are glorious in their stately elegance, providing a proper home for suitable people transitioning to the afterlife and beyond. Reminds me of the exquisite New Orleans above-ground cemeteries with little bungalows, some bigger than others. Can only imagine what the occupants' real castles were like. Rules did not exist for these folks. Generally, people of means brought comfort to themselves, believing that their most beloved possessions would accompany them in death. Not knowing what to expect, I feel like a peeping Tom gazing into the most intimate of settings. Very disconcerting. The first stone cottage contains a fragile antique tea set with some Victorian chairs. The inhabitants probably utilize them every day at high tea in their previous abode, a throwback to a better state of reason and civility. The second house, by far the largest, stunningly lodges a very sad teddy bear and an old train set. The little boy who cuddled with his friend in the dark of night is forever asleep in the back bedroom coffin. I know this is a cemetery, but it's still depressing to encounter dead children. It just isn't right in the sacrosanct doctrine of universal order. Only six of the 24 have windows, and five others are totally sealed, tomb-like, 
never to be violated again by a living human being. That leaves a lucky 13 with actual doors. Exhausting all the external opportunities to locate the doll via the windows, I come to the agonizing conclusion that my search will necessitate physical entrance into the wombs of these inviolable sanctuaries. Not what I signed up for, but duty calls. Entering the first crypt is a frightening experience. Very appropriate that there are 13 on this Friday, and I'm desperately seeking someone's toy. This is what horror films are made of, or nightmares. Vandalism and theft are apparent. Things look disheveled. Nothing of value remains. No silver, jewels, or antiquities. Nobody wants an old doll except me and Jabber's people. Why? What's the connection? Multi-generational families are entombed in the first six mausoleums. Centuries of important people harbored together, enjoying each other's company in their finality. The seventh, Lucky Seven, is different. The distinctive gray stone edifice stands out. Not that it's grander or more attractive. It's not. It's a miniature mausoleum. Maybe a dollhouse, only stone. Everything is diminished. The windows, door, and contents are scaled down to an approximate four-to-one ratio. A minuscule dinner setting with delicate chairs and table ensemble awaits a little girl to serve her guests. Unfortunately, that will never happen. She is fast asleep for eternity. This has to be it, but where's the doll? Opening the diminutive front door, I slowly crawl through to examine the tiny rooms in the back. Shit, here we go, slinking to the rear, vividly recalling the terrifying low crawl maneuver in the live fire training drill. Practice makes perfect. The good news is there are no alligators or snakes. Can't say the same about snipers who may be lurking. Don't fucking believe this. My first mission, and I'm looking for a doll, a frickin' eyeless doll, no less. My heart is heavy, knowing this is the final resting place of a young child. Finally reaching the back, a big ranger like me, a killing machine trained to harness emotion. My eyes well up. I don't want to see dead kids. The tomb of a child is just wrong. Heartbreaking and pitiful. An exquisite eyeless doll stares at me and seems to say, my name is Cindy. What took you so long? Chapter 32. Paralyzed, I can't move. Her sockets pierce my heart as if the Milky Way exploded in my soul. I have been waiting for you my whole life, she moans. Holy shit, this doll is talking, but her lips are not moving. Somehow I'm able to understand what she's thinking. What the fuck? Who are you, little girl? Tell me your secret. What are you hiding? Is there something inside of you? What? I ask her soothingly. Cindy is stunning and extremely precocious. She wraps me up in her spiritual splendor, although she is not the best dresser. Never mind, her innards smite me. True beauty is deeply internal and everlasting. Cindy, where is the facilitator? Do you know that person? Please tell me, I plead, not wanting to exit the house with Cindy visible. I crouch into a corner cradling her in my arms, needing to privately harness the power and reveal her secret. Staring into the hollows of her eyeless emptiness, attempting to extract the wisdom, I suddenly realize there is more to this doll than I am embracing. What is it, Cindy? Talk to me. Where have you been? I gently ask, not knowing if she understands. She is spectacular, even for a vintage relic. Remembering a Shirley Temple doll my cousin had, 
Most models built in the first half of the 20th century were made of composite, a mixture of glue, sawdust, and cornstarch, gussied up with all sorts of cute little ensembles. As they age, crazings or small cracks developed. And like their human counterparts, they often require a little work from the local plastic surgeon or doll doctor. Does someone hit you, I ask? Not responding, just gazing into my eyes. She is lovely, limited deterioration, and fully intact. Plain and simple, Cindy is a knockout, a 10-plus for a baby doll of advanced age whose dark, vacant poppers hold ominous secrets. As I draw her closer, she seems to say, look inward, Stephen, look innermost, examine your heart. Don't worry, the facilitator will come to you. What does she mean, come to me? It's so spooky being in this crypt, but to have an eyeless doll talking reminds me of Chucky in Child's Play. Whoa, it gives me the creeps, may never sleep again. Reminiscent of Modigliani's portrait of a young woman whose eyes are dark and glazed, as are many of his other depictions. His mantra, when I know your soul, I will paint your eyes, permeates many of his famous paintings. What do you mean, little girl? Do you know me? What I'm thinking? Spit it out. Do you know the facilitator? You are not really talking, but I understand. Tell me more. Why are you here, I beg again? Is there a bomb inside? Is Cindy a suicide bomber? Chapter 33. Hands trembling, I carefully detach the outfit, not knowing what to expect. Hopefully, her innards will reveal her heritage. Whew, no bomb, but I was fully expecting to discover a French doll company. But now, joyously glaring at me is a tiny label displaying an American flag remnant. What the fuck? This is France. How the hell did a French girl coddle a doll from the United States? I penetrate her hollow eyes, pleading... Where are you from? Tell me your story. How did you get here? Stephen, look in your heart, Cindy whispers again. Kindness is the greatest form of wisdom, and you are very wise. Damn, this doll is freaking me out. She's telling me to be kind, and I will be all-knowing. 